Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can better develop products customers love. Today, we're talking about the working backwards approach to product that was created at Amazon. And to get the details in this approach, Colin Breyer is with us. He joined Amazon in 1998, four years after its founding. He spent the next 12 years as part of Amazon's senior leadership team. And for two of those years, he was chief of staff to Jeff Bezos, aka Jeff's shadow, as he says, during which he spent each day attending meetings, traveling with them, and discussing business and life. Colin is a co-founder now of Working Backwards, where he coaches executives at both large and early stage companies on how to implement the management practices developed at Amazon. He's also the co-author of the book, Working Backwards, Insights, Stories, and Secrets from Inside Amazon. And as a reminder, listeners, we always create a one-page written summary of what we talk about that we call an action guide. It's a great tool to help you put into action some of the key takeaways. And we also, on top of that, create detailed written show notes for you, everything we talk about. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 448. And one more thing, this episode is made possible by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. That's the RPM Experience. This is my system to help product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else contributing product to increase performance together, working in alignment with each other and trying to reach those North Star objectives. It works best for new teams or established teams that are facing a big challenge. It's unlike other training, it really is an experience together to get everyone founded on the same kind of playing field for how to do a better job creating products. Go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see if it can help you and your group. Colin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be talking about this. This is a topic that has come up several times in my discussions with product people, and not everyone knows about the approach or knows the details. I think we've probably have heard some elements as you talk about them, might ring some bells. Can you just kick us off with where did this thing called Working Backwards originate at Amazon? Yeah, so it started at Amazon in the early 2000s, and it was right about the time we were trying to figure out what we we're going to do, if anything, by moving into the digital space. And also as we were exper- experimenting with different types of web services and seeing if there was anything there, it was even before the term cloud computing was developed. And what we Amazon's first leadership principle is customer obsession. And we realized that as we were building new products and features, either small features on a web, the website or going into new businesses, we weren't as customer obsessed as we needed to be with with these features. And so Jeff Bezos wanted to create a new type of process to make sure that the customer was with us for the very beginning of an idea through all the way through the journey to when the product was released. And we had tried a bunch of different ways to build products and we use the standard tools you lose you, you learn in business school SWOT analyses and, and building pro forma PLs about what we were trying to accomplish but we realized that the one person in the room who wasn't in the room was the customer and that was the most important person that we wanted to have with us on the journey we created a process called working backwards which is really if you can remember one thing about it it's starting from the customer experience and then working Working backwards from that when you want to build a new product or when you have an idea and you want to decide whether you want to build a new product or service. Okay. We probably all know the story, at least I've heard it. I assume this is true, right? Of trying to create that customer obsession. I heard one thing that Jeff did was have the empty chair in the room during discussion leadership meetings just to remind everyone about being customer obsessed. True? 
Or is that just what, I had never that? seen a chair explicitly set aside <laughs> for that for the customer. We had a lot of other reminders to make sure the customer was with us. I'm not saying it never happened, but space was pretty tight at Amazon. It was a cozy environment. Anything to have an extra chair probably would take it. Someone would want to sit in there. But, I love um, that. We hear these things and like the idea to remind us the customer is center to the work that we do central to the work that we do for product for our customers that we do as product people. Can you take us through the key activities of this approach? How do we put this into practice? If you want to share examples along the way, or we can talk about an example later, but I've only heard pieces like starting with the press release, perhaps, or I don't know where that kind of fits in, but tell us what we do. Sure. The primary tool that we use in the working backwards process is a type of narrative document called a PRFAQ document, short for press release and frequently asked questions. So at the very beginning, when someone says, hey, I've got an idea, we should go build this or this product or service. The first thing that happens is you say, great, go write a PRFAQ document. And the first part of that is writing the press release. And the press release has a couple hard constraints. It has to be one page or less. It has to clearly define who the customer is, what is the problem you're trying to solve for that customer. You have to say what your solution is, and you have to reason you have to convince a customer that this solution is worthy enough for them to change their behavior from the alternatives that they have on the market today to go use this solution to solve your problem now it sounds easy it's but it's actually quite challenging because all of this has to be in written in language that a customer can understand so no company lingo and to the customer and we often found that ideas are Companies have a lot of ideas, and the trick is how do you find the right ideas that actually resonate with customers and solve real customer problems? So that the first thing you do is that write that one-page press release. And after reading that press release, if you're not excited to go out and buy the product or use the service, you go back and you rewrite it. So it's an iterative process. It's no idea I know has made it through this whole process the first time. Mm-hmm. And once you have a press release that you're satisfied with, you can write the frequently asked questions part of the document. Some people break this up into two parts. So the frequently asked questions, the first set of questions and answers are external FAQs. So questions that the customer or the press will ask about the product. Skeptical questions are welcome too, because you want to answer all of the hard issues. How much is this going to cost? Why should I use this product over a competitor service? Is What's in it for me? Am I going to save time? So you want to ans- ask and answer all of those questions. And you're really having, seeing if it's a Socratic dialogue with the customer uh, along there. And then that second part of that FAQ document are the internal FAQs. Those are all of the hard questions and answers that you're going to have to ask and answer in order to take this idea and make it a reality. So at this point, you get into things like what are the unit economics? Can we eventually make money on this? Is this total addressable market, the TAM, big enough to be worth doing? This, by the way, is one reason why a lot of ideas don't make it through the process. It's a good idea. It's a real problem, but it just doesn't appeal to that many people. And the company has limited resources, so we could devote them better elsewhere. And then all of the other internal FAQs, some questions are identifying dependencies. Dependencies are really 
they're cheap to solve up front, but they get more expensive the longer they go uncovered. So you want to uncover all those dependencies as early as possible. And that's easy to do when you're writing a document. Dependencies on third parties, other internal groups that you may have and the like. And so you review the PRFAQ document. If you're missing some tough questions, you go back and ask and answer them. Or if the answers aren't at sufficient level of detail, it's again, it's an iterative process. And out, then and only then do you get to green light the process to say, okay, let's go start to build this. And so what it does is it really forces alignment and on things that solve real customer problems. And that we found that that's the best way to get from an idea to an implementation where it's making a meaningful impact to customers. So measured under that time frame, it's actually a fairly efficient way to get from point A to point B. If we are using this process, so say we're not at Amazon, we don't, we're not used to this yet, we're bringing it into our organization. How do we go through, is this an exercise that I'm doing as a product manager? Is, am I doing it collaborative with others? Am I involving the customer in this initial kind of thought exercise to come up with some of those, the FAQ, the value proposition, part of the PR statement? Take us through that. Yeah. So the, the press release, it's not the actual press release that's going to be used when the product is released. You don't need to involve the customer, but you do need to figure out ways necessarily you don't need to involve the customer, but you do need to figure out ways to get the customer needs out in front of everyone in the group. Looking at data about how people are currently using your product or service, you can do, we, we do use things like surveys and focus groups, but those are really secondary research. They're not the source of our primary intuition on the customer experience. We found that the best way to understand the customer experience is really to deeply immerse yourself in the data and the problem at hand and come up with conviction that it's a real problem and that this is a solution to a real customer problem. Then you can do some surveys and things to, to validate or disprove that hy hypothesis. And when you're writing this document, typically it is a product manager who takes the lead, but there are a couple of things about this type of document. One is you can't write it overnight, so you need to allocate an appropriate amount of time to do it. And two is we found that it's best to, to show people drafts of the document before you bring it to the leadership to try to get it greenlit. Show it to high judgment individuals. They don't even have to be in your group or your team, but they'll help you point out either holes in your thinking or they'll help refine the idea and make it better. Because we found that using this process, even though if you can start with a great idea originally, it's going to evolve and it will refine and get better as you use this process. So often the original idea and the product that the idea that actually gets launched is quite different. And that process is this process is also meant to improve and refine the idea. So yeah, typically a product manager, but show it around to people, get comments, set it aside, think about it for a while, come back and rewrite the document. Those are really the best PRFAQs we've seen have gone through that type of process. So it's usually not authored by a single individual. For the FAQ component, in my mind, that sounded a lot like a business case. I don't know if you ever use that language, if you stay away from that language. The reason we use the FAQ format is it's a simple format and you can ask really simple questions like what's the price going to be or 
walk me through the, the unit economics. How is this going to make money? Or tell me about the total addressable market where you're going through the business case with those, ty- those types of things. But we found the FAQ format, it just makes it clearer because you ask a very specific question and you come up with answers. But yes, a lot of information that would be in a business plan or would typically be in, in one or more of those FAQs. Kind of for level of work, right? There, there may be a lot of work that goes into fi- figuring out what those internal and external questions are, but you're ultimately showing this to a group of decision makers that we can talk about more in a second. The PR you said, but the, the press release is about is limited to a page. What's the expectation around the FAQ? Is there one? We try to keep on any document. If you have an hour meeting, we recommend that the document itself be six pages or less, and that's more. We've just found that. For an hour meeting, you spend about the first third, so the first 20 minutes reading the document and the right information density. It takes about three minutes to read a page of a narrative. So three times six is 18 plus the chit chat. And then you have 40 minutes of discussion. Now, the way that the FAQs and the PRFAQs work is you don't have to comprehensively cover the whole product in each meeting. So you start off with the idea and you could eventually say, now for this next meeting, we're going to narrow down on the pricing model for this. Are we going to use a subscription, a la carte, whatever it is. And once you've asked and answered some questions and there's nothing else, you can move those over to the appendix. So the body of the document needs to be six pages. And then you can have appendices tucked onto that, which can run well over six pages that you can refer to as needed. But so that we, what we find that does is it really forces everyone in the room to focus on the important issues at hand. And if you get a 30-page document, you can't really read through that in a 60-minute meeting and have any right. meaningful discussion on it anyway. So it's probably better off to break it up into chunks and have separate meetings on that. So pretty easy to get our hands around. There's the press release, one page, and then there's the FAQ document literally formatted as an FAQ with those external questions that we would expect customers to have and the thorny, difficult internal questions, which I think about business case-like questions. How feasible is this? Should we do this? What's the accessible market, addressable market? Yeah. I'm taking a little brief from the interview to tell you about my favorite annual conference for product managers and leaders. It's the PDMA Inspire Innovation Conference. PDMA, the Product Development and Management Association, has been researching, developing, and curating the product management and innovation body of knowledge since 1976. Most of us didn't know such a thing even existed then. That's about 50 years of product knowledge, and I bet you're like me and you don't know it all. This is where people new to product work go to meet those with deep experience, and it's where those with deep experience go to network. This year, I'll be attending sessions, networking, and also interviewing several other speakers. We'll be discussing topics on product innovation processes, customer insights, and portfolio management, along with several others. Join me at the conference. It's September 16th to 19th in New Orleans, Louisiana. And I asked PDMA about extending the early bird pricing, and good news, they did. If you register before August 10th, you'll receive the discount. Check it out now by going to PDMA, as in Product Development and Management Association, PDMA.org, PDMA.org. When you come to the conference, please introduce yourself. I love meeting listeners. Be glad to meet you as well. Thanks so much. The 60-minute meeting, I don't know along the way, right, if you tried other approaches through Amazon, if you landed on this immediately, just... For some people, this probably sounds, and we probably have heard that Amazon uses this approach, right? But why don't people just read it ahead of time and come prepared to talk about it 
tell us more about what's going on there, what you found. Yeah, most meetings are scheduled. If you have a 30-minute meeting, you just need the document should be half the size. 90 minutes you can do, but anything over that, it's just it's really too much material and too dense to cache and keep that whole body of information parse. So that was just based more on empirical evidence for an hour meeting. Six pages was about the right limit. So other than that, there's no other science behind that, just in a lot of trial and error. But in terms of your question was about why come together and read for 20 oh, yeah. together? As um, yeah, to so there's, there are two reasons why. One is that we found people will update the document until the very last minute before the meeting starts. And so if you read it the night before, you're reading a draft that has gone a little stale. And that's a waste of time and opportunity because someone's read outdated information. And then the second reason we encourage, we encourage people to say allocate the first 20 minutes is you're guaranteed everyone in that meeting is going to read the document because there's nothing else for them to do. You've got to read the document. So those are the two reasons why we say for an hour meeting, set aside the first 20 minutes to, to read. Despite best intentions, things come up, your schedule changes. And so if you baked in time to 20 minutes to read the document beforehand, often we found that, that just didn't happen. So the, that again, no science, but just empirical evidence that you're guaranteed everyone reads the latest version. So your next 40 minutes, you have a high quality discussion so you can exit the meeting with a high quality decision. Okay. And who's at this meeting? The people who would be at the meeting would be one, the person who is eventually going to write the check. So who's going to, who, you know, who has control over the resources to say, yes, we'll green light and fund it. And you can invite other people in the meeting. So the senior leaders who may be involved with project dependencies, so they can ask questions. We also, I, I typically would invite high judgment individuals to these meetings because I think that they'll make the idea better. Again, the goal isn't the document in and of itself. And the goal not necessarily in the early stages isn't to get the idea greenlit. It's to make the idea as, as best as it can be before you go start to build it. So anyone who fits that mold can, can be at the meeting. Okay. And that's a good reminder. The goal of that first meeting is to just make the information better, examine this. And you might decide at that meeting, we're not going any further. It sounds almost like if we're thinking of it as we're doing work in stages and, and some kind of gate decisions, that there would probably be some things that come up at the meeting and say, okay, got some more things added to FAQ, got some things I'm not quite sure I believe about the responses in the FAQ, go work on those, and we do this again. Is that right? Yeah, because I'm getting back to one of the things I said earlier. Most companies have more ideas than they have the bandwidth to execute. Right. So you want to be able to evaluate those ideas in a relatively cheap manner and only start investing in the ones that you think are the winners. And so a lot of those ideas, it means they're not going to get worked on or not going to get worked on right now. And so we found that this is just an efficient way to go through a large number of ideas to, to pick the best ones. Because often companies aren't like, I don't have any more ideas to, to build. It's I've got too many things I right. can't decide which one to do. That second type of problem is the bigger issue that more companies have. And then the second thing about that is we talked about the goal in the early stages. One common mistake we've seen people made, people get invested in their idea and excited about it. It's just natural. And you, people try to sell their idea. This is not the time to sell your idea. This is the time to uncover the truth about the idea. So this, the first stages are really more of a truth-seeking and you're uncovering the truth about this idea and seeing, is it worthy of investment? 
And so you don't want to sell at this point. You really want to uncover the truth. And that is, a, it's a slightly different mindset, but the types of questions that'll be asked and answered are actually quite different. And we find that often makes the difference between a very successful outcome and one that's not so successful. So you advise lots of organizations. You've seen, you've helped lots of organizations apply such a thing. And we've all been in organizations that are doing product work where, you know, maybe the, in some regards, the highest paid person or the person with the biggest voice or the person that controls the resources tends to maybe sell and say, hey, we're going to go down this path and position things. Have you found that this kind of helps adjust that culture to really focus on the merit of the ideas? It, it does. And yes, and that's one thing that's inherent in just writing a narrative and then having the collaborative document where people can enter comments before anyone gets a chance to speak to them is that everyone gets to enter their feedback. And then you look and you're covering the feedback and or either the most important ones or you just go in sequential order. And it doesn't really matter who wrote the an insightful question or said, hey, have we thought about this? Or, hey, this is a risk. What are we going to do about it? And you say, okay, because we hadn't thought of that. That's a good thing to do. Let's figure out that how to mitigate that risk before we pour more resources into it. If that's the CEO of the company, that's fine. If it's the most junior person in the room, that's fine too. It, it does eliminate a, a little bit the either the loudest person wins or the most senior person wins. The other thing, as you go around and ask questions, we typically encourage the senior leaders and the most senior person to go last, not first, because you don't want to bias or bias the rest of the people or have groupthink. Am I really going to disagree with the CEO after he or she just said that when I thought something different? We encourage those people to go last in this process. It's really good advice. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that not everyone practices. And it's just, it's just that culture, right? Because that power imbalance, if I'm a junior product manager and the CEOs are saying, this is what we need to do, I'm pretty reluctant to challenge the CEO, right? But uh, yeah, you make yeah. space if you get to talk first. So about the preparation for this, we talked about if I'm the product manager, I did my work on this, I collaborated with colleagues, you're in the organization as a high judgment person who came and talked through it with you. Am I doing more at this point? I have a tendency to really want to know from, no kidding, potential customers, their feedback. Is there someone that is actually interested in this besides we just think it's a good idea? For this first meeting, would I want to go get that sort of information or am I going to hold that off until we get to a later stage? You have some, you should by this point already have some data that really points out, that tells you that this is a problem with customers. It could be churn is happening because th at this stage in the pipeline, and we found that here are the three things that they're having trouble with, or they tried this new product and it didn't convert to a free trial, or customers have told us that shipping takes too long for the product. So this idea is focused around reducing shipping time. So you're getting that idea already through your normal course of business, through your weekly business review, where you're swimming in all of the customer data, or you're reading feedback, NPS feedback. You should already have some um, pretty clear idea of what the customer experience is, where it's falling short, and where this idea, which problem that this idea is going to solve and how it fits into the whole customer experience as a whole. Typically, you don't have to go, 
if you're doing all of that, you don't have to go to the ask customers, would you like a hockey puck or cylinder in your kitchen that you can talk to and it'll order groceries for you or tell you what the weather is because they'll think you're crazy. Usually your job is to innovate on behalf of customers, not just ask your customers, what should we do next for you? And so that we found that the more data you get to measure the customer experience, the more insights you have on how to improve that customer experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not saying never talk to customers, so don't, not, don't right? get me yeah. wrong here, but it's really the insights, initial insights typically come from the data. Yeah, okay, and that, that makes sense. We, and if we have data, we should make use of it for sure. I, and I didn't mean to portray my question was more about asking the customer to help us design, but to validate basically the idea. At some point, if we have the data that already convinces us that this is a valid problem to pursue and we think we have a solution that customers will engage with, great. I do getting customers input on that validation, right, of a, the thing we're going to do and make sure it makes sense for them. Yeah, if you can get that in a cheap way, you should certainly go do that. Okay. Another question about the process. How many meetings on average do you see all the things we're thinking about? Some subset of those is going to make it through this process because they have held up to the rigor of developing the press release and doing the FAQ. How many meetings do you see getting to the point before we green light? First of all, I'd say less than half of them make it through the process at all. The answer turns out to be, the answer at any meeting is, yes, we're going to go do it. No, we're not going to go do it. Or no, we're not ready. We need to go get more information. And that third answer is the most common answer for these meetings because you have to go through it a few times. Most ideas, reasonable size project, you can go through five of those iterations and or something, a big project like the Kindle or yeah, something like that, that would have many more PRFAQs than some of them or AWS services focused on very specific elements of an AWS service. So that would be, if it's the bigger the project, the more areas you want to go investigate. But for a medium sized idea, it's about five. You really, you don't want to get, Jeff often used to say, Bezos used to say, you want to make decisions, most decisions with about 70% of the information you'd like to have, because if you wait to get 100%, your competitors are going to get there first. So it's not, you don't have to answer everything. You have to identify what are the big things and do we all have alignment on what the problem solution are? And do we all agree that this is an experiment that's worth trying? Really good. Yeah, it's a great quote for about the 70%. If you wait too long, it's not going to be relevant anymore. You alluded to the Alexa device, right? That cylinder that I have all over my house as well. I wonder if you could just kind of share a, a product example to help us align some of the activities you just went through and make those more clear in our mind. One product that comes to mind is the Kindle product. And so it, it just started off about what are we going to do in digital? So the digital could have been digital books, music, or video one or more of those. And eventually, this is when we were developing the working backwards process. And what really clarified it is when we started writing press releases to say, would this be something that's worthy of reinventing the book, which has been around for hundreds of years? And it wasn't until we got to the point where we realized a couple, there were a couple of key elements and they were in the these original versions of the press release. One was it had to be a new type of a screen device because most screen devices, screens were backlit. So think of a bunch of little lights shining in your eye. That's not a pleasant reading experience, which eventually turned into be the e-ink screen. We had to have vast selection. There wasn't any selection there with uh, uh, e-books at this time, which meant we had to go scan a bunch, tens or hundreds of 
of thousands of books. It had to be not tethered to a device and we wanted you to get instant gratification. So instant at that time was download a book in under 60 seconds. And then the last one is it had to be cheaper than the original, like a hardcover book because of the different things. So those were the four things that we eventually settled in on with, and those were in the original versions of the press release. And as we gained alignment on there, there are some other things that we debated about, about what should go in the Kindle. Should it be an all-purpose device or just an e-reader device? And we eventually settled no on, on e-reader for a number of reasons. One, the internal FAQ said, can we build this general all-purpose device? This is before the iPad and the Kindle Fire even existed. It was several years before that. We realized there are just too many technology hurdles to overcome, so we couldn't do that. And this is the truth-seeking versus selling or convincing yourself that it's a good idea. So the Kindle was really one of the first products where we actually used that. And some of the early, what would become AWS services, also were the other area where we were trying to test out the working backwards process. And it wasn't until someone came up with the phrase that we wanted person in a college dorm room to have access to the same world-class compute services as a developer at Amazon or Microsoft or Google, that really clarified when it was in that press release, okay, so now it just, it got alignment on what we we're actually trying to do. Cause you remember that back then, Cloud computing didn't even exist then as a concept or a term, but that was what we were saying. How can we enable that? So it determined a whole lot of things about pricing models, about the rent as a service. And so that really helped get alignment and clarify things. So those are two concrete examples of where those products would not have been where they were after launch had we not gone through that customer-obsessed working backwards process. Excellent. Thank you very much for sharing the examples. Love hearing about this as you break it down, those two parts, the press release and the FAQ. Fairly straightforward to get our hands around. And then you gave us all the core activities to how to lead through this and do the meetings. And obviously your book has a lot more detail. Before we get to more resources, we do like innovation quotes around here. What's a quote you have for us and what does it mean to you? One one quote and to be Claire, we put this in our book so because we liked it so much. Dave Limp, who runs the devices group at Amazon, has a quote. He said, the best way to fail at inventing something is to make it someone's part-time job. And so there's a concept about single-threaded teams and single-threaded leadership, which means if something's important enough and big enough to be worth doing, you should make it someone's full-time job. And we found that by making the appropriate level, senior level in the company, for it has to be commensurate with the importance of the initiative and the scope, making that someone's full-time job is a way to increase innovation in that area. Mm-hmm. But if you have, if you're working on five or 10 different things, and this is number eight on the priority list, it's probably not going to get too much innovation in there. So that's something we always keep in mind. And that's a quote we like from Dave Lemp. It's a good quote, and it's a good reminder that we need to take this seriously, right? And as you said, a lot of this process, its purpose is to focus, allow us to focus on the most important projects with the resources we have. And too many organizations, they have these sort of projects as people's part-time job and a spread way too thin. Love that quote. Thank you very much. Certainly, we'll tell people in the show notes how to get to your book, Working Backwards, Insight Stories and Secrets from Inside Amazon. How else can people find out about the work you're doing and the resources you have available? 
We have a website, workingbackwards.com. So all one word, working backwards. And it explains the types of things that we do, the organizations that we work with, goes into more detail on some of these concepts that we talk about and has extra resources, sample resources, templates that you can use if you want to try some of that out. So that's the, probably the best way starting point is just go to workingbackwards.com. Okay, workingbackwards.com it is. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the discussion and having more insights about how this works. And I think there's some product managers listening. They'll go, gosh, I think we might try that on our next uh, next idea and see where it goes. So appreciate you being with us, Colin. Pleasure to talk with you, Chad. And listeners, as a reminder, you'll find those written show notes, a detailed summary of everything we just discussed, and that one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately some of the key takeaways. Those are resources at productmasterynow.com slash 448. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.